0: I'm Jeff Cohen. Yadidya and Leah Shermaier used to be known as Robert and Marcella. That's because both of them converted to Judaism. Now, how exactly did a physician in the United States Air Force and a self-described Baptist country girl raised in the Bible Belt find their way to observant Judaism? We're about to find out. Yadidya and Leah, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you. Thank you. So this is pretty exciting having both of you at the same time So we're going to get to hear your stories individually and then bring together how you met and your marriage and everything that came from there. So why don't we take it one at a time and we'll start with Leah. So give us a sense of kind of where you were born and raised in the beginning of your story.
1: I was born and raised in a small town in Midwestern Oklahoma called Weatherford, Oklahoma. Um, My great-grandfather was a Baptist minister. My family was very active in the church and I grew up as a Baptist, you know, from birth we went to church every Sunday every Wednesday evening every time the church doors were open my father was a Sunday school teacher my mother was a Sunday school teacher we had a active youth group and I was a part of that my brother played the piano for the youth group so it was a very basic part of my life and the church taught a lot of good things about a relationship with God, but one of the basic teachings was that in order to have a relationship with God, you had to have a relationship with Jesus. And so it was taught that anyone who did not have that would burn in hell forever. So that was a very scary, haunting thought that was etched in my inner being for a very long time.
0: Yeah, I can imagine hearing something like that at a young (laughs) age. You're certainly not going to forget that and and take it as like at face value, like I better pay attention to this, right? Right. And did you know any Jewish families or have any perspective on Judaism as you were being raised?
1: The only Jewish family that I knew was a family that owned the Dixie Department store in downtown Weatherford. Those were the only Jews that I knew. And I didn't know so much about them. All I was taught was that we needed to pray for the Jews so that they would have a relationship with God. And that's the only thing I knew. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so. And I'm guessing they weren't religious. They were just secular Jews, right?
1: Correct. Yes.
0: Okay, so what role did you think the church was going to play in your life as you got older and you started to become maybe more independent as a teenager? What, What role were you thinking the church would be in your life going forward?
1: I always thought it would play a big, important part because that was my identity. That was my identity to my relationship to God. So I always assumed that I would be married in the church and that I would always be a big part of the church, and that would just be a very important part of my life.
0: So let's get you, did you caught up. So take us from your earliest years through the high school years in terms of your background.
2: Well, I was born into a very staunchly Roman Catholic family. My mother was a, quote, Boston Irish Catholic, which is about as Catholic as you can get. And I was the number eight of 14 children. Whoa. And so I was smack dab in the middle of our family. We were very, very active in the church. We were five boys, and all five of us wound up being consecutive the altar boys for the church all of us went through a seminary in high school up to some point along the way but starting back over we went through elementary school good catholic schools we did the family rosary every day We went to mass daily my dad was very committed and uh, started at 6 a.m. mass then he went to 6:30. when at 7 he had to stop going because he had to work he was a general contractor and had to go take care of his jobs but we went every day and we prayed the rosary as a family every night the I went through um, elementary school and Catholic school system there in Los Angeles, then went to uh, Franciscan Seminary in Santa Barbara for my freshman year of high school. as a boarding school, much like yeshiva would be. After one year, I decided I didn't want that, so I just went to a regular Catholic high school in Downey, California, a suburb of Los Angeles.
0: So let's go back to Leah now. We have each of you kind of in the high school years, with religion playing a big part of your lives. So take me now and as you're getting ready for college and what you're planning to study, what you want to be, uh, and also how religion might be evolving at that point as you get more independence from your families.
1: So I graduated from high school and I went to college. I majored in office administration. Church was still a big part of my life. Part of it was just the social aspect because I realized that if I wanted to get married, I wanted to marry someone who is a good Christian man and I wanted to be able to meet him there. So that's basically where I was at, was that I went to college for four years. But then I didn't get married during college. I graduated, and I went to work at the local 3M company. I worked as an administrative assistant there. But after about three or four years, I realized if I ever had any hopes of getting married, I was probably going to have to move to a bigger town than Weatherford, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. So that's when I quit my job, as hard as it was, and I moved to the big city of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And when I got to Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, one of my biggest priorities was to join a good church, have a good church home. So I joined a huge church called Council Road Baptist Church, and it had a huge singles department there. And uh, basically that's where I met my husband.
0: (laughs) That's a perfect uh, point to pause. So you're Marcel at this point, and you're still Robert. So now you catch us up to that point of where you meet in the church. So what were you looking to study and do post high school?
2: Well, very very heavily influenced with the math and the sciences. My older brother was in the Air Force, and I thought going to the Air Force being a pilot was a good thing. We were Our high school was right along the flight path for LA International out there in Downey, so I kept watching the planes. I thought, I'd like to be a pilot. And so uh, I got a scholarship, an ROTC scholarship to Loyola University, and when I was there, the professor of aerospace studies approached me to say, hey, how would you like to go to the Air Force Academy? And I thought, never really thought about it too much, but yeah, I'm sure I threw my name in the hat. And I didn't. I was accepted and I graduated from the Academy. But while I was at the Academy, I was influenced by a group called the Navigators, a parachurch organization out of Colorado Springs that emphasized evangelical fundamental Christian principles and Bible study and memorization, all that stuff. And uh, so I kind of drifted away from the Catholic Church and embraced evangelical fundamental Christianity and when I graduated from the Academy, I went to Oklahoma for pilot training. And uh-huh. it was, and then after the pilot training, uh, and I was stationed in Wichita, Kansas, I decided maybe I wanted to be a doctor. And so I was
0: making trips to Oklahoma City to study for medical school entrance exam. So this is the point in the interview where one of you gets to tell the story of how you met, and the other one can offer the rebuttal. So who wants to give the uh, the story of how you came together?
1: I can tell this story. (laughs) It's a good story.
0: (laughs) Okay, go for it.
1: So I was a member of Council of Baptist Church, a member of the singles group. And in that singles group, they had Bible studies almost every night of the week. One night would be a women's Bible study. One night would be a men's Bible study. One night would be a couple's Bible study. So the night they were having the men's Bible study, the man who was hosting it asked if some of the women would bring refreshments for the Bible study so I volunteered to do that and I was supposed to take these brownies over to Chuck's apartment now I didn't know where Chuck lived and this was before the days of cell phones so I asked my best friend Peggy she happened to be dating Chuck where Chuck lived if I could get his address so she gives me the directions I drive over to the apartment and when I get there I have my little brownies and I go up to the door and I knock and either she gave me the wrong directions or I wrote them down wrong but I was at the wrong apartment uh-huh. So I go back to my car, and I'm sitting in my car, and I'm thinking, well, maybe I'll see someone that's going to Bible study, and then they can direct me where I need to go. So I'm sitting in my car, and all of a sudden, I look in the rearview mirror, and here comes this cream-colored old 88 driving up right behind me, and, he, and the car parks about two slots down from me, and I'm looking, and all of a sudden, this handsome, spelt man, emerges from the car carrying a Bible, and I'm thinking, I don't know who he is, but I bet he's going to the Bible study, so I get out of the car really quickly, and I run over, and I say, excuse me, are you going to the men's Bible study? And he said, "Mm mm-hmm. And I said, oh, I'm so, I'm so happy because, you know, I got these brownies, and I was supposed to take them to Jack's apartment and I, I got lost, and I didn't know where to go, and I don't know what to do. And then here you are. And he's like, mm-hmm. And I'm saying, well, he doesn't talk very much. <laughs> and then he looked at me, and he said, well, I'm Robert Shermeyer. And I said, oh, it's nice to meet you. I'm Marcella Payne. So I was, I took the brownies in. I was terribly embarrassed. I put them on the counter, and I left. And then a couple days later, the phone rings, and the voice on the other end says, this is that woman who bakes those delicious brownies. <laughs> and that was Robert Schirmeier. <laughs> and so he talked to me and he explained to me why he was in Oklahoma City. And he talked to me about the fact that he was president of a singles group in Wichita, Kansas, and that he'd been a pilot for nine years and that he decided he wanted to be a doctor. And before the conversation was ended, he asked me if I would be interested in, in an evening out with him. Mm-hmm. And I decided that I would be, <laughs> that he must be pretty interesting. And so we went out and after our first date, I went into my boss at Fidelity National Bank and I said, I met the man last night I'm going to marry.
0: Okay, so you did. Yeah, this is your chance to fact check that story you just heard. And the most interesting thing to me is when she described you. Even though this is an audio interview, I can tell our listeners that you were shaking your head and blushing a little bit. So what caught you about the way she told that story?
2: I don't have a, a lot of recollection of that interaction in the parking lot. She apparently does. I do recall when I was going to Oklahoma City, I was stationed at McConnell Air Force Base in Wichita. And I would pull alert and because uh, I was flying for SAC at the time, Strategic Air Command. And uh, when I'd come off alert on Wednesday afternoon... I would drive to Oklahoma City and spend Thursday through Sunday studying at the Stanley Kaplan Center for the MCAT. On Sunday mornings, I would go over to the church and have, go to morning services, et cetera. And it was there that I noticed this lovely young lady at the shul, at the, sh- at the church, <laughs> at the shul. And um, <laughs> I thought, hmm, she would be an interesting girl to get to know. And then, lo and behold, through the situation at the Bible study at, at Chuck's apartment, I, we had this chance interaction. I thought, oh, this is a great segue into meeting her and asking her out for a, an evening of Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so uh, it happened to work out well that way. And uh, so we went out, went to Will Rogers Park, and ate Kentucky Fried Chicken, had a nice evening. And that's when she decided that uh, perhaps I would be a big part of her future.
1: Can I just interject something here? I did say after our first date that I met the man I was going to marry but there was an incident that happened early on in that relationship that threatened to end the whole courtship. So we had only been dating a few weeks and there was one evening that Yedidia was going to drive down from Wichita to join me for dinner. I was so excited he was coming that I took the day off of work and I cleaned my apartment from top to bottom. I planted fresh flowers out in front and I was so excited he was coming and I was going to cook one of the most sumptuous meals I knew to prepare. So he comes that evening and he's sitting on the couch and I'm putting the finishing touches on dinner and I ask him, I said, so what have you and Wayne been studying lately? Wayne was his roommate and they had a lot of interest in Bible studies. And he said, well, he said lately we've been studying the Jewish dietary laws and we really don't know the reason for them but we fear it's probably a pretty good idea to try and follow them. You wanna guess what I had for dinner that night? Baked ham. (laughs) Baked (laughs) ham. So the evening did not go quite as, as I had hoped it would. And then the next day when we were doing some shopping, we stopped off at a Burger King for lunch. And he made sure that he did not want to order a cheeseburger or anything remixed meat and dairy. And I began to think... The ramifications of this decision might be (laughs) more than I can handle. And so after kind of a steamy discussion at the Burger King, I asked him if he would mind going home. He called me the next week and he said, I don't know what got into me. I said, I'm so sorry for what I did. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. And I decided he wasn't such a bad guy after all. And a few months later, we were married.
0: (laughs) So like most good men, he came to his senses.
1: (laughs) Right,
0: right. And eventually she did too, as far as the uh, dietary laws. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll we'll get to that part of the story. Right, right. It's, it's interesting, when I interview a couple that, let's say, was raised Jewish but wasn't religious, at this time of the courtship, there's a lot of discussions about the level of observance that they're planning to raise their kids with. But you're not yet having Judaism in your life, but are you having discussions about what religion is going to mean in your life and how you might someday have a family and how you'd want to raise them from that perspective?
1: I think we were on the same page as far as we wanted a good Christian home. We wanted to be very God-centered, and yes, we did want to have children. There were a couple of issues that we discussed as far as how many children we were going to have, and my husband was a proponent of homeschooling, which I wasn't so enthusiastic about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, uh, but at the same time, you know, we did want to have a family, and we wanted to raise them in the church.
0: Okay, so now bring us all the way through the marriage and kind of starting your life together. Like you have a wedding, you're, you're beginning things. So where are you based? I know like with the Air Force, you can get moved around a lot. So where are you starting your life together?
1: So we got married in my home church, but you did, it was still a pilot when we got married. So he was stationed in Wichita, Kansas. But then that year, he got accepted to medical school at the Uniformed Services Health Science Center in Bethesda, Maryland so that first year he went to medical school and then 11 months after we're married we're blessed with our first son and then about two and a half years later we were blessed with another son and then it was at that time at the end of his third year of medical school that he had to decide where to do his fourth year of medical school it's all clinical work there's no classroom work and so he had to decide what air force hospital he was going to be working at and so he was given the option to go to San Antonio that fourth year of medical school so we packed up and we moved to San Antonio Texas the first week we're there my husband was busy in processing at the base and I was sitting in our house waiting for the furniture to arrive it was like you know there was no furniture wasn't a lot to do and I was looking out the window and all of a sudden I see our neighbor pull up in front of her house and I'm looking out there and I see that she has two kids that look like they're similar ages to mine and I'm thinking maybe I should go over there and I should meet her. So I'm a little bit shy but I thought, you know what, I'm just gonna go over, I'm gonna say hello to her. So I run over there and I say, you know, hi, I'm your new neighbor, I'm Marcella. And she says, oh, it's nice to meet you. I'm Kathy and these are my two kids, Abraham, and Andrea. <laughs> mm-hmm. So soon we found out that although Kathy wasn't Jewish, that her husband was.
0: Okay, so he's Jewish, but he's not religious. He's just, but he's Jewish. Correct. Okay. Yes. Uh,
2: one thing, I, when I grew up, I grew up in a, a town called Southgate, California, a suburb of LA, Southgate Downey area. And I did not know anybody who identified themselves as a Jew until I got to the Air Force Academy, I mean, in college. And, and of course, there you were not going to find anybody who was uh, religiously observant for sure, let alone people who voluntarily identified themselves as Jewish. And uh, it wasn't until probably in my mid-30s that I even knew of a thing called Jewish names. I had no idea you could identify somebody as probably Jewish just from their name. That never occurred to me. So it probably wasn't until I was in my 30s that I actually met anybody who was actually Jewish and Jewish religiously which is an interesting, I think grew up in Los Angeles. You would think, oh my gosh, they got a lot of Jews in L.A. Well, they do, but they're uh, not the part of L.A. I grew up in. So, <laughs> You know, what I
0: love about your story, by the way, is that and I've done so many of these interviews now that usually even in the early parts of the story, you get a sense of, oh, I can see where the turning point is going to happen and how Judaism becomes more significant. But up until this point, there's really no indication of anything going on in how you were raised, how you met, how you started your family that would tell like any of our listeners this is going to become an Orthodox family. And now suddenly we have these people that you meet that seems to be like the first introduction to Judaism. So let's let's pick up the story there of what this family comes to mean in your life as, as your journey starts to shift a little bit.
1: So we became good friends with this family. And because they did have kids the same age as my kids, we got together a lot. We did a lot of things together and you did used to get together with Dr. Rossio they were both doctors and we just became very close with them so we knew them for about three years as neighbors in San Antonio and then at the end of that third year the Rossios were being transferred to Dayton, Ohio so I remember as they got ready to leave I remember telling Kathy goodbye and hugging her and crying saying I'm going to miss you so much but not realizing how much their lives are playing to ours later down the road.
2: So Dr. Rossio was a plastic surgeon. He was doing his fellowship in plastic surgery at in San Antonio, and I was doing my residency in emergency medicine. Um, they, he went off to be a st- attending physician in plastic surgery at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. I followed along two years later as an attending for emergency medicine at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And... Uh, when we got there
0: we reached out to to, to say hello to them and reconnect so wait, let me just ask you a question before you tell that part of the story so leah the way you described emotionally like seeing them move away when you built such a nice relationship was this an intentional move to go back to where they were or it was just there was an opportunity and you went there and it just so happens that it's the same city as them again
1: what happened was that they were transferred with the air force and then a couple of years later we were transferred with the air force and we didn't necessarily pick Dayton. That was just where we were told we were going to go. And we didn't know so much about Dayton other than we knew that the Rossios were there. So that was exciting. So one of the first things we did, we, we called the Rossios up and we told them, you know, hey, we're moving to Dayton. We'd like to come by and see you. It was funny because I remember she told me that Pesach was right around the corner or Passover was right around the corner. That didn't mean much to me. And I thought, okay, you know, so what? <laughs> I didn't know that it was such a busy time. So we came over to their house And when they opened the door, things had taken a dramatic turn from the way we used to know them. She had told me that her husband wanted to become more observant in his Judaism, but I didn't know what that meant. So we show up at the front door, and she opens the door, and she's dressed very modestly with with a snood and a dress, and then we see her husband, and he now goes by Ruvain, and he has just gotten back from Shul and he's wearing a black hat and Zizi says were his sons they invite us into the house and we see pictures of rabbis on the wall and they say, tell, show us their kitchen and they say this is where we keep our dairy dishes and this is where we keep our meat dishes and not too long after we met with them Kathy went through conversion And they were remarried, and we went to their wedding, which was interesting. I'd never (laughs) been to a a shul before that. I'd never been to a Jewish wedding. And their lives had changed dramatically. And whenever we wanted to get together, it was always a challenge because they'd say, well, we really lead busy lives. Maybe we could get together on Sunday. And we'd say, well, we can't really do it on Sunday because we're involved in church. So it was sort of hard to get together with them. We still kept in contact a little bit. But I had gotten to a point in my life where I decided it was time for a re-evaluation of my life. It wasn't like I was depressed. I would, Things were very good for me. I was married. At that time, thank God, I had three beautiful sons. But I felt like that there was something more than what I was accessing. I had gone to church, and I'd done everything I knew to do to be a good Christian. I read my Bible, we went to church every time the doors were open, I prayed, I did everything I had been taught to do to be a good Christian, but I felt like there was something more there that I wanted access. I didn't know what it was, but I felt like I wanted a closer relationship with God. And one night, as I was praying before I went to sleep, I said to God, I said, I really want to know you, no matter what the cost, please lead me into a deeper relationship with you. But of course, little did I know what was to follow. (laughs) (laughs)
0: when you went to Dayton and you saw this dramatic change in this family that you had been so close with was there any part of you that was like oh maybe they're on to something and I'd like to explore this or were you not even at a point of thinking there's something here and it was just more like whoa look how this family's changed and this doesn't look like anything that we would ever be
1: to me it seemed very foreign the one thing that did interest me was that I had been trying to be more serious about my observance of everything it said to do in the Bible, even if the people in the church didn't do it. And I had really been looking at the issue of head coverings. And so when I went to this wedding, I was looking around and I see all these women wearing shadles, but I didn't know much about shadles. And I remember asking one of my friends, I said, all these women are wearing wigs? (laughs) And I I was fascinated by that because I thought, this is something that I want to do just to cover my head, just to be modest. And so that was the one thing that intrigued me. But other than that, everything seemed so foreign. And to be honest, I was a little bit critical when we came back from the wedding because it's like, why do they have to change their names? Why do they have to get remarried? Why do they do this? Because there's a part of me from growing up in the church that was critical of Judaism, and so I really had not accepted it, and I I wasn't so accepting of it when when I saw the change that they had in their own lives.
0: Huh. And what are you saying you did, yeah, on your end? I was fascinated
2: at that time about the Jewish aspects of the origins of Christianity. Not that I was at all interested in becoming Jewish. So I figured. I had the inside track on getting things right spiritually, at least that's what I thought then. And so these things I found somewhat intriguing. There is a very fascinating story related to Pesach that maybe Leia could share from her time in San Antonio with, uh, or do you want me to tell it, about with the Rossios? That's hilarious, I think. Um, well... I'll just tell you. it's it's uh, to me it's hilarious. The last year they were there, they approached us before Passover and said, "Hey, you know, we need to get all this uh, stuff out of our house. This all these cereals and these grains, other things." And I said, "Would you, would you, you, you guys interested in, in having some of this stuff?" And at that particular point in time, uh, our finances were being strained, and so we said, oh, sure. So they brought over a bunch of boxes of cereal, some spaghetti, some noodles, macaroni and cheese, all other things, you know. And Leigh and I go, boy, we hit the bonanza here, you know. And so we, they brought over it. And so what do we know? We ate it, you know. So they come back to us after Passover and say, hey, do you happen to have that uh, cereal and those noodles? And we go, yeah, they're really good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know. And, uh, not realizing we were supposed to have held on to it for them and, and give it back to them. And instead, we ate it, you know. So. That's on them for not explaining it the right way. (laughs) Well, so anyway, here we are back in Dayton, Ohio now after they had their wedding. They invited us to their sukkah.
1: Well, they asked us if we would like to join them for a meal in the sukkah. So we said, okay. So in my mind, I thought it was just, it's like going over for dinner. And my kids were young at the time and they had school the next day. So I remember calling them like the day before that day saying, what time would you like for us to be there? And I think they said, Oh, about nine o'clock or eight o'clock. And I thought, well, that's kind of late. And so I fed my kids ahead of time and we get there and I didn't realize just what a meal in the sukkah was going to be like, because they came out with the appetizers and they came out with the soup and then they came out with this huge meal. It was so good, but I didn't realize just how much food there would be. And I was thinking, I wish I would not have eaten ahead of time. (laughs) But that was our first experience
0: in the sukkah. So far, what we're hearing is you're almost on the sidelines watching this transformation of this other family and you're having thoughts about it, you're analyzing it, etc. But there's not yet that moment where you say, "Wait a minute, is anything that we're watching meant to be part of our life?" So is that what this story is kind of about? Well, we weren't actually even entertaining any
2: consideration of Judaism because we thought we were on the right path spiritually. Uh, it to us was like, "Hmm, maybe we can uh, influence them, you know." <laughs> We are very committed in our Christianity and very active in our church, and our, our community. And the thought of Judaism was not anywhere on the radar screen. So what happened then, Ruvain asked me a few questions about why Christians believe certain things about Jesus and about uh, Christianity and how do they feel about this and the other thing. And, uh, and then he asked me if I could answer a few questions about why Christians specifically believe certain things. And I thought, Sure. I know this stuff inside and out. I've memorized most of the New Testament, memorized numerous and things in Tanakh, or the Old Testament as we knew it then. But uh, he asked a couple of questions that I didn't have a ready answer for. I said, well, let me get back to you on those. Little did I know that just the weekend before that, he had been to a seminar with Rabbi Tovia Singer there in Dayton, Ohio. And so Tovia Singer had exposed him to some things that where he could ask some very good questions that Christianity would not have good answers for. And uh, so, but I thought, well, I can come up with an answer or two here. And so I was digging into my Bible, trying to find answers to these questions he had asked, and I didn't have any answers. He said, oh, by the way, would you be interested in listening to a tape or two, a lecture or two by a rabbi as to why Jews don't believe in Jesus or accept and embrace Christianity? My reaction was, you know, the rabbi is going to mischaracterize Christianity, and then he's going to shoot down what he just mischaracterized, and it'd all be an exercise in futility, and I'll be able to show my friend where the rabbi was wrong in his presentation, and then maybe show to Ruvain the fact that maybe belief in Jesus and Christianity isn't such a crazy idea after all. And so I said, sure. So he gave me a few of his tapes, and that was the turning point. Because I had memorized so many scriptures, so many books of the New Testament, I had, I had noticed some discrepancies and issues that I just couldn't resolve. I figured, I just don't know the Greek, I don't know the Hebrew, and there's, you know, if I just knew more Greek, more Hebrew, then maybe I could reconcile some of these apparent contradictions that I see in the English translation. The problem was, when I listened to the rabbi and he spelled out the, the issues, and he did a very good job. He presented Christianity as well or better than any preacher I'd ever heard present it. And then he systematically showed the problems. And when I when he was done presenting, I was sitting there going, Well, the reason I had had some problems with some of these verses was because there was a problem with some of these verses. And I was in a rather big quandary thinking, How am I going to deal with this? Because if what the rabbi is saying is true, and at this point it certainly looks like it is, I can't stay a Christian yeah, you know, what am I gonna do now? And so RuVane gave me some more tapes of his. My wife was listening or watching me or observing me listening to these tapes, and it was not something she appreciated or liked or wanted me to do.
1: Yeah, I was not so thrilled with that. For me, this was my whole identity. This was my life. This is I grew up with the church and now my husband is listening to these tapes and he's considering the possibility that maybe some of our core beliefs are not true. That was a very traumatic thing to deal with. So things were very tense in our house for several weeks and there was one day when Everyone was gone, and I was cleaning house, and I went into my husband's office, and those tapes for Rabbi Singer were sitting on my husband's desk, and also a workbook was sitting there. And I remember picking up and thinking, I don't know, what could be so troubling to my husband? I don't know what the big deal is. And so I opened it up, and I just thumbed through it a little bit, and one of the things I came upon was where Rabbi Singer had asked the haunting question, if God wanted the whole world to know there's only one God and no one else, what would he have had to say? And then there was verse, after verse, after verse about I the Lord your God am one, there is no other besides me, I am not a man or the Son of Man, and yet in New Testament scriptures Jesus is referred to the Son of Man, and there were probably thirty verses there all about the oneness of God. Some of them I'd seen, but a lot of them I hadn't and I thought, wow, that is really something to think about. (laughs) And then I thumbed through a little bit more of the workbook and it talked about the inerrancy of the New Testament in the Baptist Church it was taught that the whole Bible was totally inerrant that there were no mistakes in fact one pastor said if you could find even one mistake that would call into question the whole validity of the New Testament and yet Rabbi Singer had laid out all these different um, mistakes in the Gospel accounts and so that was troubling to me and then I began to think well I'm sure that there has to be some answer to these questions I'm sure there has to be some explanation why it's like this I just don't know what it is so from there you did and i had quite a long conversation and then that was sort of like the turning point for me was we need to get answered to these questions we need to find out where we go from
0: here who did you turn to to try to ask these challenging questions i'm assuming you went to someone you thought was like more knowledgeable than you who might be able to give you satisfactory answers that you're you're on the right team so to speak
1: well first of all it needs to be pointed out that it's not a popular thing to ask questions in the church. <laughs> if you want to ask a question about Paul and his missionary journeys, that's okay, but you're not supposed to ask any things about the deity of Jesus. So it was a very hard thing to even let someone know that we're questioning our beliefs, because basically if you're questioning beliefs, that means that you're probably going to go to hell and no one wants to acknowledge that, that they might have those same questions. So one of the things we did was we went to our pastor. I told my husband, I know it's embarrassing, but we need to go to someone. Let's go to our pastor and let's explain to him what the dilemma is. You did. You want to explain what happened? Do you want me to explain what happened when you went?
2: Sure. So we went to the pastor of a. It was a a good-sized church in Fairborn, Ohio, a suburb or the community where the Air Force base was. I sat down with him and said, Look, here's the situation. I'm getting this information. I got all these questions. And I don't have a good solution to them. And I spelled out the issues and he sat back and just kind of looked at me for, you know, 30 seconds, a minute, trying to reflect on the whole thing. He said, he said, look, Bob, he said, "Uh, you know, a whole lot more about these issues than I do. He says, in all honesty, being a pastor, you're just busy being the pastor, you know, running the organization. He said, all I know is I know what I believe and I believe that what I believe is true. He says, I can't explain or answer your questions. I just know that what I believe is, I feel is true. So he says, that probably doesn't help you answer your questions, but that's just the way I feel about it. And I said, well, you're right. It doesn't really answer my questions. And so I said, I'm just going to buy all the books I can and really dig into this. And there were a lot of books on apologetics in Christianity. The irony is when you pull open those books, they say, here's a tough question. Oh, that wasn't a tough question. (laughs) <laughs> the the questions that they would raise and answer were like child's play softball tosses you know the hardball questions they didn't even touch because there was no answer for them and then i thought well let's let's contact some of these big name pastors that are on the radio and tv whether it was charles stanley john mccarthy these guys and reach out to them and and we really didn't get any feedback from them other than the generic canned statements from their ministries there was a, a Bible church, Christian church in Springfield, Ohio, right nearby. And I reached out to contact, because I was told to contact one of their professors in their theology department. And I reached out to them and said, oh, yeah, we'd be glad to get together. And I said, look, I've drafted some, some questions in a document. It says, I'd like to discuss with you. And can I send it? He goes, sure, send that to us. We'll get back with you. Well, they never got back with us. They said, oh, basically, we can't get with you. And I was like, well, this is this become an exercise in futility, trying to get answers to these questions. And so this process continued with me just listening to more tapes by uh, Rabbi Singer, pulling out more books, learning more marriage. At that time, I thought, you know, I've got to teach myself basic Hebrew grammar so I can see if the rabbi's blowing smoke about what these words mean in, in Hebrew. And so I got the EKS series on adult Hebrew primer and just kind of self-taught myself basic hebrew grammar this is 1995 into 1996 my wife had said to me remember those tapes that guy that vendell jones you listened to 10 years ago before medical school why don't you call him and see if he can answer your questions he's supposed to know this jewish stuff and so i said i'm oh, sure why not so i had one of his tapes had a phone number for his ministry on it so i called this number and and he answered the phone I could tell by his drawl, his Texas, <laughs> West Texas drawl. And uh, we had a discussion. I said, what about this? What about that? I said, is, is the Trinity true? And he goes, no, of course it's not. That's idolatry. So basically, he was a, a legit Ben Noach. And he had said at that time, look, I'm going to Israel this November. This is between February and that time of 95. And he said, why don't you join me over in Israel? And we'll, we can answer, go through all these questions everything else. And so along the read in, in November of 95, I went over to, uh, to Israel with Benel Jones and went through a lot of questions a lot of other things. And when he came back, that things got really exciting at the church that we were at.
1: They had a practice in the church that in the Sunday school class, in the beginning of the class, they'd say, does anyone need prayer for someone who's sick or someone who's going through a certain trial? So my husband raised his hand and he said, well, as some of you may know, we've been struggling with some questions that we're dealing with in the New Testament and, and you know, we've tried to get some clarity. And when they prayed, <laughs> no one prayed for us. No one even mentioned our name for <laughs> what our request was. But anyway, um, it was just very tense. And, and a lot of the people in the church knew that something was going on.
2: What happened was, first of all, I was a, the teacher of the Sunday School class there for the young couples. Right? Patterson Air Force Base has what they call a uh, Armed Forces Institute of Technology, AFIT. And there were all, a lot of PhD candidates there. So these was a very highly educated class. And I was the teacher of it. And I'd been sharing a lot of interesting insights about the Jewishness of Jesus in the New Testament. And they had approached me and they wanted to have a, a separate private class that I would teach just for them because they wanted to be able to pick my brain and all this information. Well, I put that on pause. I said, I can't do that until I get these issues resolved. And so I had written a paper, maybe a 20, 30-page paper, something like that, addressing a lot of the issues raised by Tovia Singer. And I had given it out to the people to look at. And it was not welcome because, as Leah pointed out, in Christianity, evangelical, fundamental Christianity, you're saved by faith. So you're, it's not your works, it's what you believe. And you have to believe sincerely and truly. So the question is, if you don't have the proper kind of faith, then that means you don't really have the faith and you're going to burn in hell forever. And so uh, if you're questioning things, you must not have the genuine article because if you're the genuine article of faith, you wouldn't be questioning things. And so you have this, this little circular argument problem. And so no one wanted to really tackle the issues because that would perhaps expose them to questions that would cause them to question their belief. And then they might wind up burning in hell forever. And so when I'd handed out this paper... To these number of men, to get back with me, they basically ignored it. I had in one question on the paper, and I made a typo. I left out a word or whatever, and uh, and they said, "Look, he he misquoted the Bible," and and they discredited the whole paper based on one misquote from a typo uh, because I'm not a very good typist. But it really created problems. We were we were supposed to be hosting. These men were going to come over and talk to us about our struggles and my role in the church as the Sunday school teacher and leader of the young couples group. And Leah can pick up there because that was probably the most traumatic part of our departure from the church.
1: So, they had called and said they wanted to meet with us and we were very excited about it because we thought that this would be at least a chance to have some interaction, some conversation about what we were dealing with because up to this point it had just been silence. So we set up the meeting for the middle of December, and they were supposed to come over one evening. So there was about four or five men that show up at the front door that evening, and you did and I run to the door to answer the door. We're so excited to see them, and these men look like they come to pay a shiva call. And they come walking in, and they sit down at our kitchen table, and I'm just kind of standing back in the kitchen listening as they talk. And they started out, and they said, So, so Bob, who do you think Jesus is? and at that time you have to remember we were really struggling with things and he said well he's my lord and savior and they said well what do you think about the trinity and he said well i think it's idolatry and he began to explain some more um, issues that he was having and one of the men who came over he he said look he raised his hand he said bob you'll know more than we'll ever know but with a belief like this what are you doing being a member of our church and i'm standing there in the kitchen listening and crying and i said if everything you had ever been taught was being called into question and you were told that you were going to burn in hell if you didn't believe like that. Wouldn't you want someone to help you? Wouldn't you want someone to talk to you?" And It was kind of quiet and one of the the leader for the group said, Marcella, the women of the church, they they really like you, they really do, and I'm really sorry for this. With that? They got up and left. And so, (laughs) I remember you know, being so devastated, it was Christmas time, I remember sitting by the Christmas tree, the lights were twinkling, I remember sitting on the couch and, and crying and, and there was one of our neighbors who happened to be a member of the church that heard about the meeting. He said, oh, well, I'll come over and be a mediator. Well, that didn't happen and I remember he came over and he said, well, Marcella, it's not like it's at the end of the world. And maybe for him it wasn't, but for me it was. Because I thought all the ramifications are so tremendous to me. I didn't know, my kids were in private Christian schools. I didn't know how they would be taught. I didn't know where we would give our children any kind of teaching, education for the relationship with God. We were out of the church. It wasn't like we could just go join another church. I didn't know how I was going to explain it to my parents. I didn't know how I explain it to my family. I didn't know where we were gonna go from there. And it was a, that was a very, very traumatic time for us.
2: I took this more intellectually than emotionally. And from my point of view, God is still God. And the fact that my understanding of my, of Him and my relationship to Him had now changed, it didn't change the fact that He was still God, I'm still me, and I wanna have a relationship with God. And so I just had to come to a new understanding of that relationship. I want to know the truth. I want to get the truth right. Whereas Leah was very much focused on how is this going to impact our relationship? How is this going to impact my family, my brother, my kids, their education? You know, all that kind of stuff.
1: That night, after we'd been asked to leave the church... He did, he came to me and he said, Well, what do you want to do? And I said, Well, for now, our kids still need to be taught. We need to be in the church. Why don't we just find a church where no one knows us and we'll go there and just keep our mouths shut about any questions we have and just go there? So we found this really small church in the town where we live called Enon, Ohio. It was a very small church. We went there for a couple of Sundays. And then there was one Sunday when he did just he said, He'd had two back surgeries and he said, I'm going out to the car. I can't sit here. It's too uncomfortable. And when we got out in the car, he said, he was looking at his Bible and he said, I just saw one more thing that, that Christianity has mischaracterized. And when we got home that day, he took his Bible, he threw it on the couch and he said, I'm never going back. And to hear that news was kind of like, if you have a friend who has a debilitating illness and they pass away, you're not totally surprised, but I was shocked and I was numb. I remember I cried a lot. I didn't really want to talk to everyone about what was going on but I didn't know who to talk to I couldn't go to the pastor I couldn't go to my friends I couldn't go to my parents I remember praying until I got I just want to die because I thought that my husband could deal with it he could probably deal with the kids but I didn't think I could deal with all the the alienation that I was going to have from my family and from my parents and from my friends And at that same time, when all we were going through this, we get the word that we're going to be transferred from Dayton, Ohio, back to Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma City. Oklahoma was my home state. And it's like timing is everything (laughs) because we were going back to Oklahoma and that's where my parents were going to be. And we were going to have to explain why we didn't go to church and a bunch of other issues. And so it became a very traumatic time
0: for me. I also understand there's a, a diagnosis that comes into your life at that point. So so share that piece of the story.
1: So we moved to Oklahoma, and things were very tense with my parents. They didn't understand why we had chosen to leave the church. I also was given the diagnosis of bladder cancer, and oftentimes when things happen to you, you question why they happen, and I couldn't help but wonder if the fact that I had prayed to die in the bathroom and then was diagnosed with bladder cancer that was not a connection. The doctor told me that most bladder cancer patients are men and those that are women are much older and they've usually been smokers or been exposed to harsh chemicals and I grew up on a farm and I never smoked so that was a another thing to, to deal with <laughs> was the cancer and and you know the relation with my parents and then after about a year of being in Oklahoma City and I'd gone through a round of chemo I was feeling tired and I thought well lots been going on and then it turns out that it was more than that that I was pregnant. I was pregnant with twins. I was very nervous about it, but thank God I gave birth to two healthy babies, a boy and a girl. And that was in 1998. And then uh, from there, just after they were born, they were born in January, we were transferred to Colorado Springs.
2: We had now been out of the church for a couple years, and um, uh, we were trying to decide, what do we do? We knew about the concept of B'nai Noach. Do we try to be B'nai Noach? We'd Judaism, but not in any serious manner. Rabbi Stern in Dayton, Ohio, had told us if we ever wanted to consider Judaism, you know, you can, quote, try it on. There's no commitments. You just go check it out and get in the community and learn, if it see if it fits you or not. If it does, great. If it doesn't, well, no big deal. And so... In Kota Springs, we were visiting a couple of the Reform synagogues, and it wasn't very satisfying. Same with the one in Oklahoma City we had visited. wasn't satisfying at all. Uh, but we had been in touch with Rabbi Moshe Eisenman out of Near Israel because I'd read some of the books, Art Squirrel books, that he had authored, and he referred us to Yeshiva Torah's Chaim in Denver, where he had a grandson who went to Yeshiva there. So we went up there and met with Rabbi Feldheim, who was one of the Rebbeim there,
1: so we went to meet with Rabbi Feldheim, and when I think back on the questions I asked, they were so trivial, but at the time they were very, to me, very important. And I was like, um, you know, we don't celebrate Christmas anymore, and what do we do when people say Merry Christmas, and what do we do about the music that we listen to? And Rabbi Feldheim acted like every question I had was the most thought-out, most insightful question he'd ever heard, and he was very kind to us. And at the same time we were there, he also told us about a shul and. Denver that would be closer to our home in Colorado Springs. He said that it was a Cure of type shul and that they had classes almost every night of the week and he suggested that that might be something that we would try out.
2: We wound up going back to Colorado Springs and I started visiting what ultimately evolved into Asha Torah in Denver. Rabbi Yaakov Meyer was the rabbi in charge there, and they had uh, NARIF classes. That's why I started going there on a regular basis on Wednesday for noontime learning. Uh, we'd try to go, drive up there on uh, on Saturday for, uh, for Shabbat services, but that was a huge challenge with our kids and the distance and everything else. And then they were going to have a seminar where they brought in a lady called Lori Palatnik, and uh, she, and that was an interesting story in its own right because of a book that the Rossio's had given us when we were leaving Dayton, Ohio, they gave us a present. And it was a book, Friday Night and Beyond, by Laurie Platnick. And so I said, look, I'll watch the kids if you want to go and hear her.
1: It was a very inspirational talk that she gave. And she talked about the role of, of women in Jewish history. She talked about her grandmother and the role that she played. And I was very inspired by what she had to say. And when we were driving back to Colorado Springs that night, I said to my husband, I said, You know, I think if I just had someone to talk to, like Lori, that that would help me a lot. Hashem must have been listening. (laughs) Because just about a year later, Yadija retired from the Air Force and we had to decide where to move. And we went back and forth initially. I thought, oh, I don't know if I want to move. I don't know if I want to take the step to move into a Jewish community. I thought, maybe we'll just stay here. But then the other thought was that if we do that, the rest of our lives will be saying, we're thinking about conversion, we're thinking about doing this, but nothing will really ever happen. And so we decided to take the plunge and to make the move to Denver. And just a few weeks after we were there, the Platinics came for Shabbaton. And about a month after that, they were part of the staff at AISH. And I began to learn with Lori after that on a regular basis.
0: And so is that leading to the idea of, of an actual conversion? Like how soon does that happen after you get to be in the community and you have kind of the infrastructure around you.
1: Well, we don't move so fast. (laughs) So, I mean, she came and I began to learn with her. It was really nice to learn with her because she was not raised religious and she could relate to a lot of the issues that I dealt with. And obviously a lot of things were foreign to me. And, um, and that was where it was really helpful to have her as a sounding board so, I would tell her the things that I liked and the things that were really challenging to me, the things were foreign to me. She began to invite us to her house for Shabbos dinners and I began to see what it's really like to be at a Shabbos table. We used to try to practice on our own. There's a huge difference between trying to practice on your own and learning from an actual Jewish person. And that's when I began to realize that maybe this is something that I really am interested in and I began to see the truth. Even though I listened to Rabbi Singer's tapes and I knew there were questions there, In my mind, I had to really solidify it for myself that this is truth because if it wasn't truth and I was embracing this, the price would be huge as far as the way the church taught. So I had to know that I really, really believe that there's only one God and that Judaism is really the path for me. But there was something in the back of my mind that was was scary to me because I was so afraid that I would commit to this and then maybe somewhere in the middle I would just have this huge meltdown and be like, I can't do this, I don't want to do this, and then where would we be? (laughs) Then we'd be in a world of hurt. So it took me a long time to realize that this is really what I wanted.
0: The fact that you have five kids, but they're of different ages, I would think they're experiencing this in very different ways. Like the twins that are very young, you have an opportunity to probably raise them from the beginning, almost how you want them. But you also have the older kids that are living through this in real time.
1: Right, for sure. So one of the, the requirements for us to be on a formal conversion path was to agree to put our children into Jewish schools. The two older children they were already in high school and so we were told that we should not pressure them if they say they don't want to go to school. they said that's not something that we should force them to do so we didn't they understood our two oldest sons understood why we were on the path we were on but for them it was it was a big thing because they didn't really have friends close friends who were Jewish and it was a whole new way of life for them so while they accepted what we did it wasn't something that they wanted to pursue and the rabbi told us that we should not force that in any way but for our third oldest son he was around 11 or 12 he was interested in conversion as were our twins so they told us that the twins would need to be in Jewish day school and at the time I was like I don't know if I want to do that or not but in retrospect I'm that was such wise advice it made all the difference in the world So they started out in Jewish day school. Our son who was 11, he was in secular school. He would learn every day with someone in the community, but when he actually went through conversion, he started yeshiva and he began to really thrive there, as did our twins. But the thing that was a turning point for us was, you know, we were kind of going along learning and I was in a comfortable, we were comfortable in the shul, I was comfortable learning with Lori, we were on a conversion path and she would ask me from time to time, when do you think you might be ready to actually convert? And I'd be like, not yet, not yet, because it was so comfortable being able to just learn but not being required to do all the things you have to do. For example, if on Shabbos, We forgot to turn a light off or turn a light on. Well, technically, I wasn't doing anything wrong if I would turn the lights on or off. Or if it was a fast day and I was starving to death, I could still take a drink of water. Technically, I wasn't doing anything wrong. So I thought, this is a really comfortable position to be in. We can learn and whatever. But in um, 2004, you know, timing again is everything. It was right before the Pesach Seder, probably like two or three hours before the Pesach Seder, my husband gets a phone call.
2: I was working at an emergency room in Denver, and uh, there had been an, an incident uh, on a Sunday night uh, with a patient that was a psychiatric patient with a, a drunk grandmother, and that was of a, for, a different nationality, ethnicity, who was very anti Semitic, and I was wearing a kippah. And uh, it's probably, in retrospect, wasn't the, the smartest thing to do because I wasn't even Jewish. But I want to get used to the feel of it when the time ever came around. So at any rate, um, long and short of it, because of that interaction and the false charges and other things of this intoxicated grandmother, they called me the next morning, which is the morning of Pesach, to say that uh, they were putting me on on administrative leave, paid leave, while they investigate this, you know, this charge, and, uh, and then at the end of Pesach. The last day of it, they called me to say, you know, we did our research and we're going to let you go because it turns out they didn't do any research. So I was let go and we had to decide. I had already gotten a phone call from a friend back in Springfield, Ohio, which is right where we lived by Wright-Patterson. I said, we got a position for you at the emergency room here for double my pay I was getting. And we thought, wow, Dayton, Ohio, uh, Springfield, Ohio, beautiful area. We can get huge home. The whole lifestyle would be fantastic, but there wouldn't be a Jewish community. What do we want to do? So we had to kind of make a decision. Are we going to stay in Denver? Uh, this was in 2004, uh, the spring of 2004, and pursue conversion? Or are we going to say, it was a nice try, but we're going to just cash in the chips and go live a comfortable life back in Ohio?
1: And for me, this was kind of like that moment of truth because I had to stop and and just reflect and think, at the end of days, do I want to take pleasure in the fact that we lived in a big, beautiful house, or that my husband made a lot of money, or would it be something much more important that we had that relationship that I would prayed for so earnestly years before? And I knew that I wanted that more than anything else. And so... Um, it was that point that's like this is more important to me than anything else and this is what I want and so that was when we decided we're staying here and my husband was given a different job he still had a you know a job as an emergency physician but he took a job in Colorado Springs and we stayed at the shul and in December 2004 we went through formal conversion
0: and how did your family react as you as you did this (laughs)
1: I didn't even tell my parents initially what had happened because I knew it would be very difficult for them. And when they did find out, obviously it was very difficult for them, but in latter years my mom developed Alzheimer's so she didn't remember anything. Both my parents have since passed away, but about three or four years ago I had a dream where my father, I saw my father, and I remember being scared at first in the dream and I said, are you happy there? And he said, yes. He said, there's lots of singing here. And he said, and I understand now why things had to be the way they were.
0: That helped you make peace with the situation a little bit. For sure. And did you also, in terms of the diagnosis you were talking about before, I'm guessing you got to a good place, like you got to remission or how did that unfold? Right,
1: right. Uh, Basically what happened was, um, I was learning with Lori in Denver and um, it was that first year we were learning she was encouraging me to send my oldest son to Israel and he chose to go and she told me before he went she said uh, Marcella she said there's a special custom that if you um, that people put prayers in the wall at the Kotel and she said if there's anything that you want to ask for she said it's a very special thing you know to to put this prayer in the wall so I wanted to be cured of the bladder cancer So I gave the note to my son and he went on the trip and when he came back I was scheduled for my cystoscopy appointment one month later. So I went in and up to this point I'd had probably ten bladder surgeries to remove tumors. I'd had two separate rounds of chemo and I went in for my cystoscopy and they did the the checkup and they sent me to one of the best urologists in the country because they said that mine was quote a special case. And he did the cystoscopy, and he looked at me and he said, you never know you had anything. And from there on out, I never had any more recurrences. And just a few years ago, when I went in for my annual appointment, the doctor said, you know what? Studies show that if you can go 15 years, you're considered cured. He said, it's been 17 years, I'll do an appointment. And after this, if it's clear, you never have to come back. So thank God I haven't had to go back. I am so thankful for that, and it was nice because right after I had that appointment, I was able to go to Israel, and I was able to go to the Kotel, and to me it was like a special way to be able to say thank you to Hashem for what He did for me.
0: That's beautiful. And you also, you know, during the interview, you mentioned a book, uh, A Simple Twist of Fate, so maybe just share with our listeners how you had the idea that you wanted to put this whole journey together into a story in a book.
1: Right, right. So when we first left the church, and things were very traumatic for me, I felt like that no one else in the world had ever gone through what I was going through, and I wanted to be able to to read something or to reach out to someone, and I really couldn't find so many books that that, um, dealt with that. In fact, I couldn't find any. There was one book called Playing with Fire, which was very helpful to me, but I couldn't find any other books. And... The more we progressed in our journey, the more I saw that there were many people who had very similar experiences as what we had, and I wanted to write a book just to help other people that perhaps they could relate and perhaps they could be inspired by what happened to us. And so, but I didn't feel like I was an author, and I remember speaking with Lori, and I said, you know, I want to write a story, but I'm not an author. I don't know how to write. She said, just put it down. She said, a good editor will help you from there, and so that's what I did. I ended up writing the book in hopes that it would help other people and that, you know, and since then, so many people have come to me to tell me how much they could relate to parts of the story. And so I just want to do that as, you know, a testimony to Hashem's love for me and, and for my husband and how he worked in our lives, and hopefully it will be an inspiration to other people as well.
0: So given the journey that both of you went on, and we have listeners who are maybe at the very beginning of the same journey thinking about conversion, what kind of advice would you give to a couple that's in the same place you were many years ago?
1: Well, first of all, you don't go into it lightly. You realize that it is a commitment. At the same time, if you want the closest relationship that you can have with Hashem, this is what it requires. And anything that's worthwhile takes work. But there is a tremendous sense of reward. For that close relationship with Hashem that you can only get through being an observant Jew.
2: And I would echo completely the idea of don't be in a rush at all to do it. There's almost no way to know what you're really getting into. So the more you practice the lifestyle and, and get immersed in it, the more sense of reality you'll have when you do convert. Uh, that's why ours took nearly 10 years. It started February of 1995, and it didn't come to completion until December 2004. And so it was not one of these snap decisions. Of course, the first half of that, we weren't even thinking it. But even then, once we started considering it, it still took years.
0: So I'm just curious, as we're closing out the interview, what's next for you as a couple and for your family? What are your goals in Judaism as you move forward? So we're now empty nesters. Our two
2: oldest sons who did not convert are living here in the Denver area and doing well. The three younger ones did go through conversion, have thrived amazingly in, uh, in their Yiddishkeit. Both of the boys were valedictorians of the yeshiva. So our three Jewish children are back east, <laughs> two in Baltimore, one in Lakewood, and our two non-Jewish children are here in Denver. So we've got a a bit of a a conflict of interest, but we'd really like to be closer to our children and grandchildren, seven of them, thank God, uh, in the Baltimore area. I retired from working in the emergency room. I own a couple urgent cares, and I help manage those and run those.
1: So right now as an empty nester, obviously it's a new role that I'm still trying to adjust to, but um, Hashem is blessed with beautiful grandchildren, and that's kind of where my focus is right now, is spending time with my kids and with my grandkids. And Hashem has blessed us tremendously.
0: And it's such a beautiful story and I think will be truly inspirational for our listeners. I just want to thank you for taking the time today to join me on Saturday to Shabbos.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for having us.
2: Thank you for the time and for listening to us and to our story. I hope this will be a source of encouragement for anybody else who's uh, going through this journey or for Jews that can encourage people going through the journey, because it's a challenge.
0: Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit Tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a -A 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 story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at Tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.